getting situated. We're going to start a new series today. Well, supposed to be last week, but it's today, so it works out. Um, on Jonah. So, what do you guys know about Jonah already? What do you, what do you guys think of when you hear the, the uh, swallowed by the whale or the fish? Kind of depends on what you hear, depending on what it is, right? A giant marine animal, right? Swallowing up a person. Maybe a shark. Who knows, right? It was a giant. It was, it was, it was uh, maybe it was a megalodon. Who knows, right? Yo, because, right? Because how big does the fish have to be for somebody to live in there, right? So, and we kind of wonder, right? Because a lot of times when people are trying to, especially if you have atheist friends or people who have doubts, they're, they're going to pull this story out and go, well, how did that even happen? Right? And so they wanted some kind of explanation that all of a sudden we're called the carpet for as Christians, and we say, well, it just happens. And so you either kind of go down a line of, well, it's all, it's a parable or fictional story, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, or we can say, look, this is what God did because he is the creator of everything. Right? He commands everything. He commands the fish to, to get, to catch Jonah and take him back to the land. Um, so these are the things that we're going to explain these, you know, this weird portion. But really, we focus on the fish part, but really it's like a line or two in the whole book. So there's a lot more going on in Jonah than just the fish. Right, and that's what we're going to talk about because really it's about kind of what we sung a little bit, right? Getting out of our comfort zone, obeying God, doing these things. And those are the things we're going to talk about over the next six weeks um, as we go through Jonah. So this is a little bit of an introduction. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, information, kind of, you know, the who, what, where, when, and how the book happened and wrote it and everything else for a little bit. Uh, but also we are going to look at this in the context of the first three verses of the book because this is the whole setup for the whole story, right? And so, again, when I said Jonah, everybody's pretty familiar with it. So that's part of the reason I picked it. And also, we're moving into more of a missionary phase that we need to get in the mindset of. Now, we've all been through that, but now we're kind of, the way I look at it is we're, we're coming out of the cocoon. Right? We've kind of did the cocoon thing. We fixed the building up, everything else. Now we're ready for prime time, in a sense. So we need to get ourselves out there. Right? And this is, this is a bigger thing of how we do things. And God has already called us. He's already made us uncomfortable the last few years, you know, from getting us from Clark Avenue to here. Right? And so there, but it's going to continue. Right? God does not want us to be comfortable all the time. He doesn't want us to sit, sit on our laurels and rest. I'm not saying we're doing that, but I'm saying it's a way to prepare, prepare our minds for the amount of work that will be ahead of us. So we're going to go ahead and read the, ver the first three verses, and then we'll explain it because we see on the outline it says uh, God spoke to Jonah, that's verse 1, God commands Jonah, verse 2, and then God, or Jonah disobeys God, verse 3. Right. So we'll go ahead and read it and we'll, we'll explain it as we go. <clears throat> so it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against, its, preach against it because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. All right, so that's kind of the setup of the whole book. And we see there's some repetition in there. If you look at it, we're going to talk about it in a few minutes that the author is trying to get across, right? So I titled this series, The Reluctant Prophet, right? Because here's somebody, we, he's called by God, he has a prophet, and yet... He does exactly the opposite of what prophets are supposed to do. 
He goes the other way, right? So here's the main point of the story, or of this whole book, really. All right, so the book of Jonah demonstrates what can happen when people repent of their sins and turn to God. Right, that is the main point of the whole book, basically. This is what it is. This is a living demonstration. This is historical fact of what happens when people turn to God. Right, and we see this here. We see it. We are also examples of this. Because we've all been at Jonah at one point, probably. We've all repented. Though, if, we're, if we're saved, we've repented of our sins and we turn to God. So we see in the first verse that, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Right? So that is, uh, that is what it is. The author writes this down. We don't know who the author is. We're not sure if it's Jonah. He's just kind of writing the third person or if it's somebody else capturing all of these. But Jonah is one of the 12 books that make up what we refer to as the minor prophets. Right? So when you get through Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, they're all the major prophets. Not because they're more important, but because they are bigger. The books are bigger. So the minor prophets, like if you flip back and go to Obadiah, it's usually, depending on your Bible setup, it might be one or two pages long. Uh, some people's Jonah even fits on one or two pages. Um, right, so these are the minor prophets. These were usually going on at the same time as some of the major prophets. Right, so you kind of the same stories or same situations going on. Right, so that's why it may seem repetitive if you read them kind of straight through, right? <clears throat> but unlike most of the prophetic books, they say things like, these are the words of Obadiah or Amos, right? That's usually the opening lines of a lot of the, the minor prophet books. But this jumps right in and says, when the Lord commanded Jonah, or the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Right? So this is kind of a third person deal, like I said, right? So we don't know when this was written officially, um, but we do know it was written around at least by 200 BC. So 200 years before Christ was born, this book existed. We know that because we have it. We have copies of that. Uh, because there's reference to the 12 prophets, and it's mentioned in an apocryphal book, a couple of some, some Jewish literature that mentions other stuff that's not biblical, that we don't, it's not our canon, but it is part of the larger Jewish uh, books and history and things like that. Um, so there's a proposed middle date, possibly though, of somewhere between the 6th and 4th century, so around 6, 700 or 500 BC to 300 or 400 BC, right? so a couple hundred years prior to that. Um, so that would be right around the time of the Babylonian exile, right? So the time of Daniel, right around that time, perhaps. The earliest date, though, would be about the first half of the 8th century B.C. And it's mentioned in 2 Kings, because Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Right? So you kind of get a setting. And that is, if you read Kings, if you read 2 Kings, like tonight or something like that, uh, so about chapter 15 or 16 is when the Assyrians come into the picture. So you see Jonah, if you put it in context of this book, in that, so you see Jonah going to talk to the Assyrians and get them to follow God. And then later, though, they come over and take over Israel. And they, they exile people from Israel, right? So, so we kind of keep that in mind. So it's been around for a very long time. They didn't just stick it in there. The Christians didn't just stick it in there just because it fit. They just already been part of the Jewish canon, right? So this is an old book. Right? We, we know that. So as we read the Bible, though, it's important to know what kind of literature or what we're reading, right? Because, again, we talked about the Proverbs, right? They're more poetic, so they have figurative language. They have more, you know, it's a little bit flowery, pretty, prettier. Um, some prophecy is apocalyptic, right? Dealing with the destruction and end times, and it's a warning. Um, and the language is going to be strong and more figurative, but, but also 
little bit scary sometimes. But it's a historical narrative. It's going to be pretty straightforward because the author's just recounting a story. So this is more historical. They think it's more of historical. It's historical fact. Right? This is what happened. This is the true story. This is really what went on. This is what happened, up and including to the fish. Right? Because we, we are accustomed to, as, as Christians, understanding or at least hearing the miracles. And we just take it on faith. We do take this part on faith. Well, how could it happen? I have no idea. But it happens. Right? We know it happened, right? Because we're dealing with the God who created everything. And that's what Jonah refers to next week when we talk about it. He even acknowledges that, right? Um, and even Jesus recognized this and he referred to himself that just like Jonah and the fish, I will be resurrected in three days. Right? And so he referred to this, that this actually happened. <clears throat> and so it's not allegory. It's not just a story or a parable to get, get us to follow God. Like this is what happened to some guy named Jonah. You know, this is really, is there was a real guy named Jonah. There, this really, all this stuff really happened. I'm gonna, I keep stressing that because it's important. Because the, the classical view is that Jonah is historical. It says, one commentator says that ancient tradition regarded the book as historical. So the Jewish scholar, Josephus, for example, used it in his first century account of Jewish history. And also the church fathers also recognized that the remarkable nature of events nevertheless treated the book not only as history, but also as a prophecy confirming the power of God to raise the dead. Right? And so we see this, if the resurrection of Christ be so credible, be credible, so is that of Jonah and vice versa, right? Because even in the New Testament, we see other people being resurrected. Lazarus was resurrected from the dead. God has the power to do whatever he wants. This book also has a bit of satire and irony. Now, we kind of lose it, or maybe we don't get it because maybe the translations of the jokes, if you've ever tried to tell jokes or read jokes in some other foreign language or have them transferred over, it doesn't really work uh, because words have different meanings in different languages. Um, but it's also considered a masterpiece of Hebrew literature. Right? As we go through these things, we're going to look at this. And so the, this two, it's broken into two halves, right? that God gives the word. So the first half is chapters 1 and 2 that deals with getting Jonah to obey God. And getting him to Nineveh. Right, and we see the kind of the, we'll leave the cliffhanger here at verse 3 when we leave here today. Um, but then the second half is chapters 3 and 4 with Jonah preaching in and around Nineveh. And then the Ninevites actually repent and they are saved. Right, so that's the people's response to Jonah and, and God's preaching and God's word. So there's really two main characters. It's God and Jonah. Right, God and Jonah are the two main characters. They're the only two named characters as well. Everybody else... Is just the people, the ship person, the captain, the king, whoever it is. Right? They don't get names. They are the focal point of the story, and God is the one directing all the action. Right? Again, this is important. As we read this, we see who's doing what. We see who the actors are, who's making things happen. He, is, he will make the storm happen and next week when we talk about it in verse 4. He is the one that directs the fish. He controls the weather at the end. You know, He's all these things. So, um, Mason, go ahead to the next couple of slides. So that's that. So we'll talk about the map. It's not super big, but we'll look at it here in a few minutes. Right? But as we go through this book, we're going to see how people respond to God, both people who claim to be God followers and people who don't or are not. That's where some of the irony comes into play next week is because Jonah says, I'm a God, I follow Yahweh, but yet he's going the opposite direction. Right? And the people on the ship, 
they say, yes, we're going to repent and follow God because we don't want to be killed. We, we, we see his power. We understand it, right? But we see this and we see that how we can make the, these connections in our own lives and to our lives. Because like I said, at, at times we are Jonah. God says something and we like, yeah, I'm going to go that way. Right, and so this is the so we see the word of the Lord. He, Jesus, or God spoke speaks to Jonah, but now we're going to see that Jonah or God commands. He's not just telling him something; he's telling him something to do. So in verse two, he says, "Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me." And so Assyria was Israel's neighbors to the northeast. So in modern day Iraq, so if you guys see the orange circle on the map, that is. So the very top of the orange circle, there's a black dot. If you can see it, that is where Nineveh is. Probably can't read the name. That is where Nineveh is. So Israel is kind of the bluish green small band right there where Mason has the mouse pointing at it. So that's the lower part of Israel. Jerusalem's there. Um, so you see how far away they are. That's about five or 600 miles roughly. <clears throat> so depending on when the book was written, Assyria was on their way up in power in world conquest. They started moving out from Iraq and moving, moving uh, west and taking over the region. Right? And so it says Nineveh was a great city. Nineveh was a city whose reputation called for direct action from the Lord. Right? They said this, the word great designates nothing more than its size. It was a huge city in the region. It was being built up by the people. Again, if you read through Kings and Chronicles, it talks about the Assyrians. So it's situated on the eastern bank of the Tigris River opposite the modern city of Mosul. Right, with all the Iraq conflict, we've all heard the city of Mosul several times mentioned before, right north of the city of Zab. It's an old city dating back to about 4500 BC. And it's one of the principal cities of ancient Assyria. Right? So it was the capital at one point. Um, but the Assyrians were known for their brutality and cruelty. And we talked, when we went through Daniel, we talked about the Babylonians. And it seems like the Babylonians, because they're kind of cousins, they kind of learned from the Assyrians. Uh, Ashurbanipal, the grandson of Sennacherib, was accustomed to tearing off the lips and hands of his victims. Yeah. Tiglath Pilser, these are, and these are all in second, roughly 2 second Kings and in the Chronicles books as well, and also some of the prophets. Tiglath Pilser flayed victims alive and made great piles of their skulls. So imagine going to this city, or being told to go to this city to preach to people. That Jonah's reluctance to travel to Nineveh may have been due to its infamous violence. Right? And we think Tanglewood may be bad. I don't see any skulls hanging on anybody's houses here. Right? Or he may know that the Assyrians are basically the enemy. He just may say, look, they are the enemy. They are going to try to take over our country. And he's asking, how could God request that those people are offered the same amount of grace, the same kind of grace from God as us, God's people, the Israelites. Why would he want them to join the club with us? This is our club. Nobody else is allowed in. No girls allowed, right? Kind of like the, uh, what was the Spanky and all those kids, right? The, the, the Our Gang, right? They're like, no, no girls allowed. No, no Assyrians allowed. It's just Israelites. Because sometimes, though, in our real lives, it's hard to understand God's grace and who receives it. Right In the movie Breakthrough, we saw it last night, right? The teacher asked the boy who survives, why do you think God chooses who lives and who dies? 
He doesn't have an answer for it. Of course, he's a 14, 13, 14-year-old 14 kid. He's like, I have no idea. Theologians don't really know either. It's God's grace. God chooses whom he will. Right? And so it's hard for us. It's hard for people to say, well, it's not fair. Right? So in his forthcoming book that I'm reading, I got an advanced copy called Something Needs to Change. David Platt, who was the president of the International Missionary Board, he's a pastor in uh, the big, a bigger church in uh, Virginia, um, he taught, the book is about him taking a hiking and sort of a, a not necessarily a missionary trip, but he, he takes his trip to the Himalayas and kind of through that region. And so before they come to one of the villages, his friend who lives and works in that region, you know, he invited him on this hiking trip. He says, look, I want you guys to notice something or pay attention to something in this village. He says, There's an absence of young girls so between the ages of about 12 to 20. And he tells them that in this area is extremely poor. And so sex traffickers come and they talk the parents into letting their girls leave the city or leave the village, be taken to the city, and they are put into the, the traffic. They're trafficked. Right? They're prostituted out. And of course, they promise all the parents money and everything else, and it never happens. But they're so poor that they figure that we can get some money for them at least, unfortunately. And so Platt, he, he, and he's, you know, it's kind of his memoirs a little bit, but he's shaken by this revelation because he has a daughter about that age, about the age of eight or nine. And he asks, why, God? If you are in control of all things, then why do you let this happen? Why have you not saved these girls from this slavery? Why have you not struck down every single one of these traffickers? That's a valid question. We don't know the answer to that. Other people have a problem with that when we used to say it's part of the plan. Right? Because it doesn't seem like it's a plan at all. And so we have to address these things in the world. And that's what Jonah is feeling most likely. That's what we feel every day when we hear bad news sometimes. But we forget that Jonah seems to, and Jonah seems to forget that God showed the Israelites grace all throughout their existence from his election of Abraham to the leading of the nation through the wilderness during the exodus from Egypt. And having Jesus come and die on the cross to save everybody. So in his book, though, Platt goes back and he's reading, he's reading Luke. He says through, that's what his Bible plan is for, the, for what he's doing it. Um, he doesn't understand everything that he's experiencing. But he reads Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, in which Jesus is in the temple. And he reads the scroll of Isaiah and says... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so Jonah was selected to, to proclaim this good news. Right? That's what Jonah was selected to do. God said, I want you to go over there, you know, take a 500-mile trip east, to Nineveh and tell those people that they can be free. They can be free from the captivity that they're in, the sin that they're living in. Because he says that their evil has come up before me. So Jonah is being sent. But Platt also comes back and says he is there to start giving those people hope. To let them know they're not forsaken. To introduce them to Jesus because the guy who takes Platt and his team with him, he says there's only there's a couple million people living in these, these regions but only about 100 people are Christians. They've never heard of Jesus. But he knows that he is there to give them hope, to give them their sight back, 
to both the physically blind and the spiritually blind. Right? That's what Jesus did. And that we can be enriched through God with this good news. And we can help other people be enriched as well. Right? Because the Old Testament prophets all got, they got to function as a precursor to Christ. They got to act just like Jesus would be later and tell people the good news to repent, turn back to God. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus was the only one able to fulfill that, actually allow them to turn back to God. So here's the application for this point, though, is that when God commands us to do something, it is for a reason, and we have to trust him. Right? When God tells us to do something, when he says, I want you to go do something, whatever it is, and it's, it's for all of us, it's going to be different, most likely, for certain things. Now, maybe all for the, this church, we'll say, but we all have different pieces to do for this puzzle, right? He's telling us for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. It's not just because he's all willy-nilly, right? Everything happens for some reason. Even if we don't know what it is or how it will turn out or why he wants us to do it, right? As a kid, I'm a big why person, you know, your parents said, clean your room. I said, why? Make your bed. Why? Go, go do this. Why? Right? So what did I hear a lot of times? Because I said so. Later, I figured out why you make your bed, why you do certain things, why you keep your room clean. You know, but a lot of times we don't get that answer. Sometimes it'll get explained. Sometimes we'll just kind of figure it out later, Right? But a lot of times, though, we have to do things because we, even though we think it's unfair. Because we have a skewed ver- vision or view of what fair and unfair is a lot of times. Um, but Abraham didn't know what would happen when God told him to move his family four to five hundred miles east. Or west, I mean, from, from where he was in Iraq over to, to the Israel. <clears throat> Joseph did not know what would happen to him when he was in the pit and sold into slavery. He just figured he, figured he was going to die. Paul didn't know what would become of the guy who was blinded on the road and he had to trust someone of a group that he was there to persecute. He was there to kill people, hunt them down, and yet now he is helpless and blind in the city with one of these people now leading him around. He could have let him off a cliff. And when you read Acts, that's kind of what the one guy sort of wants to do. He's like, oh, we can get rid of him. All our problems are solved. And Jesus says, no, take him, heal his eyes. Ruth didn't know what would happen to her and her mother-in-law after, their, after her husband died. But it all turned out for the better. It all turned out because all those, all those people are all part of the story to lead to Christ getting here. And we are, the same. we are in that story as well. We just don't appear in the Bible. We are all here to get to Christ. We are all here to help other people come to Christ. Right? We're not on the same level as Paul or Joseph or Peter, but we don't have to be. Because we're just here to bring people who God wants to bring to himself. To help. We are part of that plan. Right? Because all of these people sensed that God was calling on their lives. And they knew it was more than just a job or a purpose. They knew there was something there. Like, I'm going to obey you. No problem. Right? There was trust. There was trust there no matter what. They knew though also that trusting God. When they said yes I will trust you God. It was a life changing event. When the God of the universe, creator of everything, says, I pick you to come here and do this, that's a pretty big deal. Like, that's like being the rock star. You've won the American Idol. You've been picked. 
And even though you may never make it to TV, you never make it in a book or write a book or be a, you know, whatever, you're bringing people to Christ. Because that's what we are here to do as a church. They're here to be, we're here to participate and live in his kingdom. When we get this call, we hear this command, right? He says, get up, go. It can be a little daunting, right? Have we ever heard that? Maybe some similar phrase where we know God is telling us or it doesn't make any sense, but we're like, okay. But sometimes it's easier as a Christian to say, you know what? I'm not called to do that ministry. I'm not, I'm not good with kids or I don't know how to teach or I don't know how to talk to people about God. And we just push it off, right? And so we make this decision either way to either obey or disobey God, right? And so we see what Jonah does in verse 3. And so the narrator tells us, so Jonah got up, right? So if you're listening to this story, you hear the word get up. God says get up, and we, and we say Jonah got up. We're like, all right, he's on a good track. Woohoo! He's listening. But then he goes the other way. He got up to flee, to run away, to get away from. <clears throat> instead of going to Nineveh, or we, if you look on the map, instead of going this way, he went that way. And so he goes down to Joppa. So he goes down. He's in Jerusalem, presumably. And he goes down to Joppa. So Joppa's right around where Mason has the thing. It's actually on the coast, kind of right in the where the word Jerusalem is. So it's right about there. All right, so we see he walks down to the seaport. And he, he says, I want to get on a ship to go wherever you're the farthest point away is. And for, for them, the time, it was a city called Tarshish, which was basically at the end of the known world. And it was probably a Phoenician seaport in Spain. So I couldn't find a good map with Spain on it. But it's 2,000 miles from Joppa through the, all the way across the Med to like the Straits of Gibraltar, where the, the Med comes into the Atlantic. Right, so he wants to get as far away as possible. God said go east. Jonah wanted to go west. And here's the interesting thing. So not only did Jonah go in the opposite direction from God, it's most likely that Jonah... At the very least, it says he paid his fare. Right? Verse 3 says he paid the fare and went down into the ship. Some renderings may take that as he actually rented the entire ship. He said, I want to leave right now. I need to go. Here's all my money. Let's go. There's no other passengers mentioned or anything else. So it may have been that he had enough money. He was rich enough to do this, but he rented the entire ship to go. That's how bad he wanted to get away from God. He wanted to spend whatever money he had to, to, to leave as quickly as possible. Because boat travel, ship travel, is not very fun, especially that time of that time of this the earth, right? The wooden ship in the Mediterranean and everything else. Um, it's not fun. But if we see that the narrator uses the word down several times, right? He went, he got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into the ship to go with them to Tarshish. He's kind of getting, he went this way as far as he could, and he's also going this way as far as he could. Because God has always thought of being as up. Right? God lives in heaven, he is up. So I want to go down to be away. So he can't find me, hopefully. Right? It also indicates that Jonah is getting farther away from God. He's making a choice to go away from him. Right? He, he's using his free will to say, I am out of here. I am not doing that. I'll do whatever you want except that. 
Right? He doesn't want to do whatever it is, right? But what motivated Jonah to flee from the Lord? Right? As we read, we heard, you know, the Assyrians were terrible. So maybe it was just that. Maybe it was, or was he afraid of God, right? Or was it a fear of God, right? The narrator doesn't give us an answer. But the more relevant question for us today is what makes you run from God? What is it that makes you run away? Because you have to go talk to your neighbor that you don't like. You have to go somewhere that you maybe feel unsafe. Whatever it is, you know that. Right? Maybe it's you don't think you're sinless enough to come to church yet. You know, and we're all here, but maybe you have friends that think that. Well, I'll go to church when I'm perfect. Well, it doesn't work that way. And you'll never come in. And it'll be too late by then. Or maybe you don't think you have enough knowledge to talk to somebody about the gospel, right? Biblically, though, we should fear God. So Jonah has it right in a sense. We should fear God, right? The Israelites were so afraid of God that they had Moses go up to talk to God. And they said, we don't want to be around him. You go talk to him. We'll stand over here. We'll stand here in the field. You, you, Moses, you go to the top of that mountain and go talk to God for us. Just tell him we said, yeah, we agree to the terms, right? But you signed for us. You're our proxy. All right, we, we don't want to, we'll make the payments, but we don't want to sign the contract for the dealership, Right? That's what it was. That's how they understood how powerful God was, how scary he looked. But we don't have to be scared, right? We're not, when we're talking about fear, we don't, we don't have to be scared. But we should be reverent, understand who we are going to stand in front of one day. Right? And this is not to scare anybody, but this is to sober us up about who we are really dealing with. We're dealing with the creator of the universe, the one that controls everything. And so here's the application for this verse. It's, it's Psalm 2 verse 11 it says serve the fear with lord or serve the lord with fear excuse me and rejoice with trembling and it seems like that's contradictory how can i be happy if i'm scared right it seems a little weird so this but this is what we take away from jonah's example right because sometimes you learn from people you learn more from people who do the wrong thing than you do from people who do the right thing Right? We learn more from our own mistakes as well versus learning something when we do everything right. But you can serve God with awe and wonder and fear, but you can do it joyfully. When you read the encounters with Paul and Peter or Moses interact with God, they are rightfully and properly afraid. If you ever had to go into your boss's office or the principal's office, you have that fear, right? You're a little scared. You're like, oh man, this is the principal or this is, this is the big boss. I'm in trouble, right? In the Air Force, I'm not sure how it works in the Army, but in the Air Force, if people saw you in your full service dress or your, your fancy uniform with the coat and everything, they usually thought you were in trouble. They said, what did you do? And it was usually true because a lot of times, especially as maintenance people, you don't wear it, right? So if you were getting dressed up, you had to go see the commander for something. You were in trouble. And so when you stand before the commander, you're like, man, I don't want to, you respect him and his authority and his position and also as a person because he is the commander. Right? So, and this, you know, God is just that umpteenth level to that. But when we see like Peter, Paul, and Moses do this, they're rightfully and properly afraid because they know he is the one who created everything. There's no question about this. There's, no, there's nothing else to say about that. Right? We just know that. And so, but when you read James or Paul or Peter's letters, they're overjoyed that they're in the service of the king. And James says... My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
right? Because it's, a, it's scary to be in this test or this trial, but we can count it joy because we know that our, there's a purpose behind it. It increases our faith, increases our patience. Paul's letters, he is joyful several times over for being able to, be, to suffer for God. Right? He says this, to suffer for God in proclaiming the good news of, the, of Jesus to the Gentiles. It's almost like Paul and Jonah are exact opposites. You know, Jonah ran away and Paul ran to the Gentiles. In Philippians 1, verses 18 through 21, Paul says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that though through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that not now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Excuse me, he says, and we all know this one, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. No matter what happens, I'm going to be joyful about it. I am thankful that I am here to be a part of God's plan. And he wrote those most likely from prison. So how happier can you be from prison? In a hole. But Jonah doesn't rejoice. He just runs away and he's afraid. Because he chooses not to serve the Lord. He doesn't get to rejoice because he doesn't make this connection. He's just serving the Lord with fear and that's like scared fear. God wants me to go do something. I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I can't. I just can't. And how many times have we done that with God? I just can't. I can't do it, God. Just ask me to do anything else. Yeah, I'll cut the grass for a month. I'll do the dishes. I'll do whatever. But don't make me go talk to that person. Don't make me go to this place. And so he misses out on the joy. And he doesn't rejoice. He just tries to run away. And if you've seen, you know, cop shows or westerns where the outlaw runs away, he's just living a life on the lamb. And he can never settle down. He can never have a family. He can never do anything because the cops are always there looking for him. Right? The sheriff is one step behind him waiting to catch him. And so that's no way to live. See, God didn't put Jonah in a prison, but Jonah seems to think that obeying God and carrying out his mission was way worse than jail or worse than dying. He said, I'll run away, but I'm not going to go there because I might be killed by the Assyrians. Maybe they'll catch me and just throw me in, the, in my head or up on a pike out there. So he ran away to avoid and he created his own self-imposed prison sentence. That we're going to see it next week, right? Jonah ran from his mission. But you see, we see Christ walking toward his mission with confidence. In the New Testament, you know, he's born, he comes, he's raised, he lives. He keeps going back to Jerusalem. He's almost arrested several times. He knows he's not going to get arrested yet because it's not part of the plan. But Christ walks towards the cross with confidence. Every step he took on this earth was to get him to the cross. then to the grave so he could act as a sacrifice on the cross and then he would be raised again through the Father's power from the grave. And so that is what the differences between Jonah and Jesus are. They're kind of, they're opposites in a sense. And we'll see, and next week we'll talk about a little more about the sacrifice piece of it uh, because there's a difference there so I don't want to give it away yet but, but if you read it you kind of maybe pick it up on, pick up on it. Right, so that's the difference. That's why we can be joyful because Jesus already beat everything. He already conquered death. He took away our sins. And so as Jonah set sail for Tarshish, we were left with a bit of a cliffhanger for this week. 
If you've never heard the story now, we all, we all know, most of us, I think, know the story. But it's still kind of a cliffhanger, like, okay, he's on the boat, there he goes. He's sailing off into the sunset. You know, what's going to happen? Dramatic pause till next week? <laughs> That's right, I, I should have made, made a sign, or a plus slide. <laughs> right, but Jonah's story is one of God's grace. That is what we take away. That the whole Bible, it's a microcosm of what the Bible is. It's a story of God's grace. His grace extends to the people who already follow him and also to the people who haven't heard the story yet. As believers, we are God's instruments to proclaim the good news to those who do not know of God just yet. That's what David Platt in his book, he was like, I can at least tell people this thing. I can tell people I can do certain things. And I haven't finished the book, so I don't know how it turns out yet. Um, but... That is what he's there to do. That's what he knows to do. That's what we're here to do. We're here to tell people the good news and encourage them and help them grow in Christ as we grow. Right? We have a little bit of a head start, mostly, most likely, but we are still here to learn everything too. Because the message of salvation through God the Son is too important and too exciting to keep it under your hat. Right? It's just too, too good of a news to keep it all to yourself. You know, it's kind of like have an arcade token, and you don't even use them. Just keep them in your pocket. So the question's for the week. There's no, this isn't really an action. This is more of a reflective action, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, so the question is, are you running from God right now for something? I don't know what it is. You guys need to pray that. Pray about it. If he's telling you something, if he's talking to you, don't worry, you're not crazy. But the question for that is, if so, if you're running from him, why are you running from him? And the other question is, what would happen if you turn toward him and actually listen to him? Right? What, what would happen in your life? Would something drastically change, like terribly bad? And you're, like, you're probably like, yeah, yeah. I won't get to do certain things. I won't get to do this or that, or I have to do, give up this or that. Yeah, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever God's telling you in your own your lives. Um, think about that. Think about what, what are you running from and what are you running towards? And how drastic would it be if you turned around and went back to God? So as we do our last few songs, right, think about this. And, and you know, the song we're going to sing next is Walk by Faith, right? Because that's what we're doing. We don't know. We don't see the road. We don't know what the road is, but we're, we're going that way. All right, so guys, go ahead and stand.